our family has taken. I, I took the month of June off for some physical rest and some uh, family reconnection and some spiritual and emotional renewal. And one of the things that our family did while we were gone just a couple of weeks ago was to travel to Grand Canyon National Park. And while we were at the Grand Canyon, our family enjoyed and observed one of the realities that Psalm 96 displays before us today. And I'm going to get back to that in just a minute, but let that be a little tease. Psalm 96 is a poem, just as the rest of the Psalms are. It's a song that the Old Testament Israelites sang in their faith community. Most of the literature in the Old Testament is of the narrative genre, or storytelling, but poetry is, has a pretty big chunk too, and this is a poem. And when we read the Psalms, we don't read them like a linear story as we would a, a narrative, at least not usually. I suppose some of them are, have some narratival features. We don't read them the same way we read apostolic epistles, like those written by Paul and Peter and James, wrote to churches or individual people, and then interpret what uh, they were saying by looking at the indicatives and the imperatives and how those parallel to our church today and us as New Testament Christians. Rather, as we read and interpret the Psalms, we need to keep in mind what the context and intent of the original authors was and how God used their communication method to convey his message. So I invite you to read with me again. We read it a few moments ago, but it's been a few minutes, so let's read again Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. These are the words of our Lord. And this is a poem, a song that I believe is simply broken up into two parts. Verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 11 is the second part. And the most important clues that the texts the text gives us that's pointing to breaking it down in this way. Come in verse 1 and in verse 7. Look at verse 1. You will see a word repeated three times. Verse 1 and into the beginning of verse 2. Do you see it? It's the word sing. Now, some of you know I love singing whether it's singing that I'm doing or listening to other people singing. And I love it when the Bible calls God's people to sing. And in fact, Psalm 96 is in a group of psalms that repeatedly call for singing. You could just let your eyes glance over the previous and following psalms. Psalm 92, 1 through 4 speaks of this. 95, 1 and 2. 98, verse 1. And then in verses 4 through 6, in, ver in uh, Psalm 100 sometimes called the old 100th, and then Psalm 101, verse 1, Psalm 104, Psalm 105. There are calls to sing throughout this section. And so one quick thing we must note is that God's people are a singing people. And the Psalms make this clear. If you are a child of God, you love to sing to him, even if singing isn't quite your thing. You might not love singing like I do as someone who's done it his whole life and even does it sort of as a side job as well. You still will love to sing to God because of his worthiness of praise. 
There's a, a pastor, author named Alistair Begg who observed recently that Americans, we Americans, don't have singing in our DNA quite like Europeans like him do. He's from Scotland. He speaks about the fact that in Europe you could walk by or into a pub during a They call it football. We might know it as soccer match. And hear the crowd in that pub break into singing of various kinds when a goal is scored or at the end of a match. In America, this is less so the case. And so it's not quite as easy or natural for us, but the truth is that when the people of God observe and meditate on the truths of God's nature and works, one of the most essential and natural responses is singing. And so this first section of Psalm 96 starts with a threefold call to sing praise to God. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Well, the second section, starting in verse 7, starts similarly with another threefold call, this time a three times repetition of a different word. This one, do you see it in verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8? Ascribe. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. That word ascribe essentially means give. You could think of this giving as giving credit, giving honor perhaps, or you could think of it also as actually giving something concrete, not abstract, something concrete that the object of that giving deserves or is due. Either one of these these understandings certainly works for this uh, mentioning of ascribe to the Lord three times. And so the second section of this psalm calls people God's people, to give to God what he is due. And that's where we see the connection between these two sections. The first section contains a call to sing God's praises, to put his name on display as being glorious, sing to the Lord, bless his name, declare his glory in verses 1 and 2 and 3. And in the second section, it's similar. Ascribe to the Lord or give to the Lord or give him credit for fill in the blank. In verse uh, 7, glory and strength. In verse 8, give him an offering. In verse 9, give him worship. And so, these two parts of Psalm 96 are related in that they they both contain calls to glorify and honor the Lord. And after each call to worship, there is an explanation given. Do you see this? Once again, looking at verses 1 through 3. It says, sing to the Lord, declare his glory, and then verse 4 starts with the word for, or you could say because, and then goes on to explain why this call to sing his praise and declare his glory. He goes on to explain why, because he alone is God, because he is great and glorious, because he has done amazing things. And then you see the same thing in verses 7 through 9. 7 through 9 says, give glory to the Lord, worship him. And then in the second half of verse 9 and through verse 13, we see this explanation that he deserves that glory and worship because of his nature as a just and righteous king and judge. And so this psalm has two calls to worship. And then, explanations of why. And so that's how I think you essentially break it down. And that's probably how Psalm 96 would have been sung. Two stanzas, both communicating important truths about God-deserving praise. Now, I would ask you to turn with me back to the book of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles 16. 
In chapter 15, you see David bringing the ark to Jerusalem and building a tent for it. And now in chapter 16, verse 1, it says this, And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. You can skip down to verse 4. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and the second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemaroth, and all these names that are too hard to, mispr- to pronounce, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. Benaniah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the ark of the covenant of God. And then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Okay, then this is what they sing, starting in verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number of of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their accounts, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. But now, look at verse 23. Verses 8 through 22 had some familiar sounding things, but look at verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Sound familiar? Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Sound familiar? Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verses 23 through 34 of 1 Chronicles 16 are almost exactly the same as Psalm 96. Did you notice that? So whether David wrote this song in 1 Chronicles 16 and then Psalm 96 is just part of that song that someone put in the Psalter, making him the original composer, or whether David in 1 Chronicles 16 was referencing a psalm that had already been written by someone else or Asaph, we don't know exactly. And you notice in Psalm 96 it doesn't say a psalm of David like so many of the psalms do. But that's an important contextual connection for us to see the similarities between the two. And what follows 1 Chronicles 16 is 1 Chronicles 17, which is where we find God's covenant with David. And that is a monumental occasion in redemptive history. So Psalm 96 is quite significant in its content and context. Whichever came first, the psalm or the ark's arrival in Jerusalem and its tent, what we have here is a song used by Israel to declare God's glory and to worship him in his presence. But my friends, I want to suggest to you today that Psalm 96 isn't simply about worship. And it's not simply about singing, as much as I would love to just park on those first three verses, first two verses, and and go crazy about singing. Those elements are there. They must be noted and applied. But I believe that Psalm 96 is primarily about the mission of God and the mission that he has given to his people. And Psalm 96, 
you can turn back there if you haven't turned back yet. What else do you notice about the content of both these sections? Look at verse 3. Declare his glory to whom? To the nations. His marvelous works at the end of verse 3, among all the peoples. How about in verse 7, speaking of ascribing to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord his glory and his strength. In verse 10, there's this call to say among the nations that the Lord reigns. And you even see the phrase, the peoples, repeated two more times before the end. Why is this significant and important for us as we consider what Psalm 96 is saying and how it applies to us? I think it's because of what verse 1 starts with. Verse 1 says, sing to the Lord a new song. And so this would indeed have been a new song. And and not a new song in the sense that, that a new record was released and was climbing up the Jewish charts. No, rather this song was new in the sense that the message and intent behind it was new. Here's what I mean. God's people were used to celebrating God. Used to celebrating their identity and their their meaning as the chosen people of the one true God. And listen carefully, they were used to viewing the pagan nations as outsiders, as enemies. In fact, in previous Psalms, the previous 95, there are multiple times in which we find the nations described as outsiders and enemies, those who rejected God, those who oppressed and opposed God's people and therefore deserved wrath. And yet, here in Psalm 96, we have two calls to worship. And the readers and singers addressed in this poem are not just the people of God. They are also the nations. You see how that is significant? It's not just Israel in their covenant relationship with God, but the surrounding pagan nations, too, that are called to join in the worship of God, to enjoy his presence, to be assured of his nature as a righteous king and judge. And so I think that's where the focus should be when we read and interpret this psalm. This is a psalm with two calls to worship that have one missional purpose, to declare his glory among the nations. This passage has really been burning in my heart this week. It's one of those times where I feel like there's so much to say, and I get behind the pulpit already kind of frustrated and stressed out because I know there's no way I'll be able to say everything that could or should be said. This psalm is so vital for us, Redeemer Bible Church. I might have to skip some of my notes along the way. I've got more notes than I ever have before. We must hear the message of this psalm as a call to worship to us, but also as a call to worship to the nations, and therefore a call to us to participate in that call to the nations to enjoy a relationship with God. So let's look at this further. What is it that the people of God are called to declare among the nations? One word answer you could have, a simple one word answer, and that is news. Look at the end of verse 2. You see this word where it says, tell of his salvation. That word translated for us, tell, in its original Hebrew form, is an imperative word that is the closest to a Hebrew word for evangelize as there is. So in a real sense, this is a command to declare the good news. And the ESV translators have certainly helped us with that, haven't they? They've translated it, tell of his salvation. That's exactly what it's getting at. And so that is what the people of God are to declare among the nations. The good news about God's desire and designs to save. And so I think what we have here before us in Psalm 96 are six calls to the people of God to declare news. The first of which is to declare the news about God's grace. 
to declare the news about God's grace. That's right there in the phrase we just looked at in verse 2. That's the basic gist of this whole deal. Declare the news of his salvation. That he is a God of grace who saves sinners from the penalty and effects of sin. And certainly throughout redemptive history up to the point of Psalm 96 writing, God had done this over and over, time and time again. Most notably in the Exodus, when he freed the Jews from slavery and oppression in Egypt, but in other ways and at other times as well. And not just in terms of rescue from earthly oppression, most importantly, through, a, through providing a means of atonement for sin so that they could draw near to God as he drew near to them. So he had done that for Israel time and time again. But you know what? He had done it for Gentiles too. To be sure, Gentiles are not the main character of the Old Testament. They're not the main recipients of God's grace in the Old Testament, but it's there. And so in a sense, this new song in Psalm 96 might not have even been quite as new as some of the Jews may have thought. And that is at the heart of this first call to worship in Psalm 96. Sing the praises of God's grace, people of God. Let the whole earth, then, be declaring how gracious God is. May God's people declare the news that he is a God who saves. Friends, did you know that singing in corporate worship in this room today and every Sunday, 52 weeks out of the year, is a missional activity of a sort? You know as well as I do that unbelievers are often present during our Sunday corporate worship gatherings, whether that be a, a visitor or perhaps even someone who's, who's a regular but doesn't know Christ. And when we sing together, when you sing, brother or sister, you are preaching a message. And you're either preaching a message that God is awesome and exciting and worthy of praise because of the salvation that he has freely given to his children, or... We're preaching a message that Christianity is just another religion of the many in the world and that this hour and a half that we have together is just a ritual that we perform as a duty once a week-ish, except for the weeks we have something better to do. And so I ask you, what sermon are you preaching when you sing in this congregation? I mean, think about it. When you sing on Sundays, are you singing with your whole heart? Are you praising God with the inner person of your being and it coming out in songs, as other psalms say, loud songs of praise? And obviously, the most basic element of singing is your voice. Are you lifting your voice in praise to God with zeal and passion and sincerity and, yes, even a mind of evangelistic fervor, perhaps even going into the service and while you're in the service, praying that not only would God delight in your offering of praise, but also that some unbeliever present would see and hear your sermon and be moved to trust in Christ for salvation. And you know what, brothers and sisters, some of you have heard me say this before. It's been many years since I've talked about this. I also believe that if we're going to give thanks and praise to God with our whole hearts, that means doing it with your whole self. Every part of who you are, your emotions, your spirit, and even your physical body. And I don't want to get too much into this, but that's part of why I think the Psalms speak of physical posture at times and the lifting of hands or clapping or bowing down or pointing to the reality somehow through your physical posture that God is worthy of praise. And this is just, this is just not what this Psalm is about, so I don't want to go there for too long, but it is okay for you to demonstrate physically the truths that we're singing through the raising of a hand or the extending of your palms or some other kind of of genuine display of the worship of God. We certainly don't want that to become some kind of empty religious performance. We don't want it to become a fear of man thing where you just want to make sure people see that your hands are raised because it means you're right with God and you're a better worshiper than they are. No, of course not. 
but out of a totally sincere display of your love for God and your desire that the attention be squarely on him, sing to him with all that you are. But more than anything, it's about your heart. All of the externals might look and sound nice to an uninformed bystander or first-time visitor. Your voice might be loud, your hands might be up, your face might be smiley, but if what's going on in your heart doesn't match that face, that volume, that posture, it's all empty. And I, I do think that God sometimes works in our hearts through our efforts to deliberately posture ourselves and smile and sing loudly for the sake of our own hearts. But brothers and sisters, I know I speak on behalf of my fellow Pastor Brian and say we would much rather see a room with no hands raised at all if the hearts were genuine than a room filled with raised hands of unbelievers or Christians who are just pretending to praise God when they're not really doing so. So singing is a missional activity that declares the news of God's grace. He is the one who saves. He has saved time and time again. He has saved all throughout redemptive history. He has saved his people through the atonement that we celebrated a few minutes ago, through the perfect and ultimate sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God, our Savior Jesus. So declare the news about God's grace to his people through Jesus. That's the first call. The second is this call to declare the news about God's greatness. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 96. Declare his glory. So this idea of declare necessitates the use of words. Certainly you can preach a message, so to speak, through the taking of the Lord's table. We talked about that already, this sort of sermon-esque type thing. You can preach a sermon with your life, but this is a call to declare his glory. Talk about how awesome he is. Tell the news of his greatness. Talk about how he transcends everything and everyone else. Point to the beauty of his creation. Give him credit for it. Talk about his power and sovereignty in your life. Tell stories that make his greatness Shine, And in fact, that idea of shining is one of the main ones behind the idea of glory. The idea of weight is sometimes there too. And that is actually important for us to think about when we're thinking about this as a missional song. Because the pagans who believed in false gods needed to hear that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was a real God with real glory. A shining brightness. He was substantive. But we also need to remember that when Moses asked God to show him his glory in Exodus 33, what God did was proclaim his name and describe his nature. He passed before Moses and said, I'm forgiving and gracious and merciful and loving. And so how do we declare the news about God's greatness? Lots of ways, but the most vital way is to declare the truth of his nature that he is awesome, that he is powerful, that he is glorious, and at his heart he is good and gracious and forgiving. May we, Redeemer Bible Church, and each of us as individuals be characterized by declaring his glory, the news of his greatness and his nature. The third call is to declare the news about God's works. And once again, we're talking about the goodness of God. There's certainly overlap between these things. We're talking about the goodness of God because when the Psalms and their authors refer to, in verse 3, second half, his marvelous works, they're usually, when they use a phrase like that, either talking about his power as the creator to make and sustain and control all things, or they're talking about the work of deliverance and or provision on behalf of his people. And so this psalm calls for God's people to declare the news that not only is God glorious in his good and gracious nature, but he also acts according to that nature. He makes a beautiful world. He is sustaining it by his power. 
He's governing all things according to his sovereign plan. He is caring for his people. He is providing for them and most importantly has provided for them atonement for sin. Oh, my friends, that is a message that the unbelievers of our world need to hear just as much as they did in the days of this psalm's original writing. The news that God is great, that he is good, that he is powerful and wise and loving, and he acts accordingly. Those who have never believed sometimes discern that the evidence does not always point to a good God whose works are praiseworthy. But as his children, we know the truth. He does do what is good. His works are praiseworthy. And brothers and sisters, we must tell that news. The fourth call, this is a big one, is a call to declare the news that only God is God. Look at verses 4 and 5. Speaking of how he is to be feared above all gods and the other gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. That is a deliberate comparison in verse 5. The first half speaking of worthless idols, the second half speaking of a real God. That would certainly have been news to a pagan world. The Jews were used to hearing this and singing about it and celebrating it. But as the Jews sang and recited this song and this poem, they reminded themselves and each other that they needed to tell the nations that God is the true God and that all the other, you put it in quotes, gods are nothing. That their God was the one true God, that the nation's gods could never be what they wanted and needed. There's actually a really... A really cool and, to me, interesting literary thing going on here. It's one example of why we need to read and study and interpret psalms as poems, because doing so will unlock deeper and richer meaning. Look at verse 5 at the very beginning. In the ESV, it says, All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. And we would say, Amen. But seeing only the English translation, we will miss the play on words that the psalmist is using here to add to the weight of his message. The word gods, at the beginning of verse 5 there, is the word Elohim, which some of you may be familiar with. It's basically like our word God. The Jews used it to apply to Yahweh at times, but it also is just the word for God, though obviously when applied to Yahweh, it's talking about the one true God. But that phrase at the very end of the first half of verse 5 is this, worthless idols. That is the Hebrew word Elilim. Elohim and Elilim sound very similar, don't they? That's deliberate by the psalmist. As Tucker and Grant point out in their commentary, it's a word, Elilim, that is really hard to capture in one English word. It's a special kind of word that communicates value rather than a word that simply describes And so the ESV translators, once again, have done a very good job by rendering that word worthless idols because what the word essentially means is insignificant, vain, and worthless. For all the gods of the people are empty, vain, insignificant, and worthless. And so clearly what these verses are saying is that while the world thinks that they have gods, while they think they have Elohim, they actually have Elilim, which is emptiness. And so the psalmist deliberately uses a play on words poetically, beautifully as well. The Elohim of the people are actually Elilim. They're Elilim, not Elohim. And friends, isn't this true of our own context? That the world around us is just grasping at whatever they can get their hands on, either literally or spiritually, to find something bigger than themselves, to give purpose to their lives. But for all who do not worship the one true God, they are grasping at air. They're looking for worth and meaning and purpose in something that's worthless and empty and vain. And that is tragic. I mean, think about it. It's all around you. Stadiums that are filled, arenas, restaurants, concert halls, theaters, and other large venues 
filled with people looking to sports teams and players and films and theatrical productions and food and music and human celebrities to give their life enjoyment and purpose and a feeling of being part of something bigger than themselves. But in the end, it just leaves those worshipers of false gods feeling emptier than they did before because they're El Elim, not Elohim. They're worthless idols that cannot satisfy, that cannot redeem, that cannot grant eternal purpose and pleasure. And so the people of God are called to declare the news that only God is God and that only He can satisfy the longing in every soul for meaning, for value, for worth, and for purpose. And He can provide a way for sins to be atoned for, for forgiveness to be extended, and for eternity in His presence to be enjoyed. The fifth call is to declare the news that God is glorious. And that's very similar to the second call, I grant you that, but I did want to distinguish it because the last word of verse 6 is, has a, is a very important word. It's the word sanctuary. And what that's talking about is the presence of God in the holiest place. And what it's saying is that the presence of God is glorious. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. It's beautiful. It's majestic. It's a place of refuge for his children. It's a place of astounding awesomeness. But think about verse 6 in the context of the rest of what you know about the Old Testament up to that point. What do you know about what happens to sinful man when he approaches the Lord in the splendor of his holiness apart from an atonement for sin. Think about it in the context of the rest of the scriptures. Think about how God's people responded to an appearance or the presence of God in scripture. I'm just going to have to fly through these. In Exodus 33, 18 through 20, Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will be gracious to whom I have to whom I am gracious, I will be merciful, on whom I show mercy. And then he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Then in the next chapter, 34, the Lord descends in the cloud, stands with Moses, passes before him, proclaiming his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, so on with these words as you're familiar with. And Moses' response is to quickly bow his head toward the earth. And worship. Then in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and hearing these angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the foundations shaking at the voice of him, and the house filling with smoke. And Isaiah says, Woe is me. I am lost. You could translate that, I'm toast. I'm in trouble, for I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees the glory of the Lord and says, I'm doomed. The disciples on the mountain in Matthew 17, that's where we're going to be in, well, who knows how long, but in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 6, where uh, the, Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, and what do the disciples do when they see him? They are terrified in verse 6. They fell on their faces and were terrified. Of course, John says in Revelation 1, verse 10 and 12 through 17, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and then he hears this voice. I'm just skipping it for time. I wish we could read the whole thing. He hears this voice. He sees this vision, and at the end, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Being in the presence of the holiness of of God is a place of glory. And it is also a really scary place for sinful man. In each of these instances, you cannot see my face and live, bowing down in worship. Woe is me, I am doomed, falling on my face in terror, falling on my face at his feet as though dead. But in each of these instances, do you know what follows the fearful and terrified response of God's people when they encounter his glory, it's assurance of grace. In Exodus 34, 10, 
Moses bows down in worship, and God proclaims to him the good news that he's making a covenant with his people. In Isaiah 6, 6 through 7, he says, Woe is me, I'm doomed. And then a messenger from the Lord comes and says, Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In Matthew 17, verse 7, when they're terrified, Jesus says, Fear not. In Revelation 1, in verses 17 and 18, This one whom John saw says, fear not. My friends, the offering of Jesus, the spotless lamb, and made by Jesus, the perfect high priest, is for us the ultimate assurance and atonement. It's the only way that sinful man can approach this God of glory in Psalm 96 in the splendor of his holiness. There's something else we need to see here. Psalm 96, verse 6, still there. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The sanctuary is the place where God dwells. And it says that strength and beauty are found there, where God dwells. In other words, it's a good place to be. It's beautiful. It's safe for his children. But remember, the psalmist was actually talking about the temple, the dwelling place of God, where a physical room called the sanctuary actually was. But here's where this gets exciting, my friends. For us, in our New Testament context, after Jesus' gospel work was finished, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn, and access to God was no more guided by the need for an atoning sacrifice of animals because Jesus was himself the once-for-all sacrifice for all who come to God through him. Jesus is himself now where the presence of God is found. Friends, did you know that this room that we're gathered in today is not called the sanctuary? Obviously, it's a bit of a colloquial thing. Sometimes people use it. That's fine. But it's not a sanctuary. It's not a holy place where the presence of God dwells. That place of beauty and safety for God's people is now the presence of Jesus, opened up to us by the work of Jesus. Oh, my friends, when you rejoice in God and sing his praise, when you declare the news that God is glorious, when you acknowledge and proclaim that in his presence there is joy and peace and eternal safety for his children, remember who it is that made that possible. It's Jesus He sacrificed himself for our sins. He made the once-for-all sacrifice, and he threw open the doors to the presence of God, this place of strength and beauty in his sanctuary. Hallelujah! That is good news for us to share. And now, the final call here is really the whole second stanza, the whole section where this song shifts gears and moves from what we might consider to be more obvious to something that makes the whole matter quite urgent. Sixth and finally, declare the news that God is the judge. We've already looked at verses 7 through 8's threefold call to ascribe glory to the Lord, but now I want you to see the end of verse 9 where there is this response of trembling before him. And once again, this is missional because it is a call to all the earth to tremble My friends, a vital part of the news that God's people declares to the nations is that God is righteous and holy and just. And that news is both good and bad. Because if you're not right with God, your response is to tremble. Look at verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. He will judge with equity. He is on the throne now. He is in charge now. His judgments are just and righteous. See it again in verse 13. The Lord comes to judge and he will judge the world in righteousness. So the judge is reigning now and he is also coming soon. And that has some of that already not yet idea in it, doesn't it? We talk about that sometimes, the already true and not yet totally true thing in theology. God is is reigning rightly now, but the day of the Lord, the day of his judgment is also coming. 
He will judge the earth in righteousness and in faithfulness, and it will be just, it will be right. And that is really bad news for his enemies. But it is really good news for his children. And that is why the people of God are called to declare this as news, as evangelistic messages. Because there are sinners who will be judged under God's holy wrath if they do not repent. And they need to hear the news that God is a righteous judge and a reigning king to whom their allegiance is due and by whom they can be saved. So those are these calls to worship with missional purpose in Psalm 96. I refer back to Tucker and Grant in their commentary that I read this week where they say, somehow the Old Testament faith community had lost their sense of the missional responsibility amid discussions of their own uniqueness and identity. The same can be true of the church today. Brothers and sisters, I would say it is true of the church in our context and even in our church at times. Friends, Redeemer, we need to pursue understanding who we are in Christ. We need to embrace our uniqueness and our identity as God's people. We need to rejoice in the fact that we are God's called out, elected new creatures that are being sanctified for our final glorification. But, listen carefully, if those realities do not lead us to mission, what in the world is the purpose of all of this? What are we here for? Brothers and sisters, our mission is not to sit around and talk about how bad the world is, how much better we are than everyone else. We are. Our mission is not just to keep some sort of status quo, keep things how they've always been, keep it going. It's not to have an insulated or isolated clique or, God forbid, turn into a cult where we just do our religious thing. No, the mission of the church is to make disciples to declare his glory. And that means declaring the news of how glorious God is to the nations. And friends, that includes France. That includes Indonesia, which, by the way, our mission partners, Jared and Sharon Kessner, are going to be here with us next week, mission partners to Indonesia. Our E412 time is going to be Jared and Sharon updating us. It's going to be great. That includes North Africa, that includes China, and that includes America. America is the nations that Psalm 96 is talking about. We are not Israel. We are a Gentile nation. And so, friends, do not miss the point of Psalm 96. This is certainly a call for worship, but it is also a call to the nations to worship. And as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10... How will they hear without someone preaching? And if you say Romans 10, 12 through 14 is for missionaries like the Marxes and the Kessners, you're wrong. It's for every one of us in this room today, just as much as it is for anyone that we would consider a missionary because they happen to go over the ocean or whatever. Psalm 96 was a call to worship to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the pagans, to those who did not yet have a relationship with Yahweh. Because, my friends, God has always been missionally minded. He has always been interested in the nations coming to him. And now, after Jesus' death at Calvary and his resurrection, Psalm 96, in our context, is a call to the nations not to convert to Judaism, but to convert to Jesus And that call, that message, that news, that's what we've been given to share. Now, at the beginning of my sermon, I said that while we were at the Grand Canyon, our family observed and enjoyed one of the realities that Psalm 96 communicates. And you can see it in verses 11 through 12. The heavens be glad, the earth rejoice, the sea roar, the field exult, the trees sing. We observe that nature declares the praise of God, even though many people don't. Psalm 19 says it too. The heavens declare the glory of God. 
Verses 11 through 12 of Psalm 96 also reminded me of Jesus' words in Luke 19 where the disciples were declaring these truths from Psalm 96 at his entry into Jerusalem, that he was worthy of praise, that his works were mighty, that the king had come, and then the religious leaders didn't like it, rebuked Jesus, and Jesus said, if they don't say it, the rocks themselves will cry out. And friends, while our family looked and stared in amazement at the Grand Canyon, those rocks were, in a sense, crying out their praise to God. God is worthy of praise, my friends, for who he is, for what he's like, for what he's done, what he will do. And you know what? If no one praised him, creation would. We sang at the very beginning of our service, creation sings the Father's song. Psalm 96 calls you and me and all of us to declare the news of God's grace, of his glory, of his works, of his exclusive claim to deity, of, his, of the reality that he is a just judge. And so may God transform our hearts to reflect his heart for the nations. May he give us grace to obey his word. May he use Redeemer Bible Church to make disciples for his glory. Let's pray. Our merciful God, you who are pleased to condescend to speak to us through your word, please grant us, all of us, grace that we may not be mere hearers of the word, but doers. Oh, Lord, guard us from stubborn, cold, unchanging hearts that would leave this room without any change at all. Give us the grace to believe what has been proclaimed. May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do. Grant that your word, which we have heard, would be inscribed on our hearts. May our hearts be filled with love and reverence for you. Help us as a result of your word being preached today to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to live in holiness, to follow your commandments. And may it please you to use us to lead those who are lost and wandering and confused into the way of truth. All this we pray for the honor and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's take a few moments as we always do and pray quietly in our hearts and meditate in response to the preaching of the word.